Uh, also want to um, show you my status of my, uh, my, my book that Yvonne and I were um, privileged. Thank you for giving us a week away in January. We had a great time editing this book, Passing by the Field. This is a little bit different form than what you've seen it before in the past. But this is a final draft copy and I have um, put, the cop, put the final order in yesterday. A uh, copy for every single one of you families. And uh, even we're thinking about praying about giving this to new visitors who come to the church just to kind of say, here, here's a, is a book that, that I wrote. It's a, it's a book that I have a vision that would sit on your coffee table, maybe provoke discussion as people come by. And as your kids are, are there, each, each page has got a little, little picture. It's kind of, kind of really fun. Kind of an easy book, but really gives you a flavor of the gospel, gives you a flavor of joy in the Christian life. And uh, would be very helpful. But hopefully in two weeks from now, I'll be able to put a book in your hand. And I look forward to that day. So it'll be great. Um, but I did want to introduce my message by looking at this book or by talking about it a little bit. Because when Yvonne and I were, were finishing editing this book, one of the comments that she made was that, Steve, I see in here that you have because it's got 101 different stories. OK, 101 different lessons in life. And, it, and it, he, she said something like, Steve, it seems like you have a lot of stories here that really focus on the glories of the gospel to the exclusion of the things that we should do or respond or implications. Um, And almost like, you know, there's the gospel. It's so glorious. It's wonderful. We just believe and that's all. And and not not calling anything to obedience or not calling us to respond to the gospel. Quite right. And I think that she was right in that. I do have some stories in that. But I said, you know what? I think I also have some stories that are on the other side that, that just call us to obey the Lord and just call us to submit to Him and seek Him with all of our heart. And so even what we did was we had 101 stories. We had 101 sheets of paper that we laid them out on, on the bed and even started labeling them about whether it's just speaking about the glories of the gospel or whether it speaks about a call to obedience and submission to Christ. And as I recall, those ended up actually being about, about equal um, but the concern was, is a good one, that so often we can be enamored by the, the glories of the gospel that we can forget its call upon our lives. And, and maybe that's not for us, but maybe some others. There are, there are people who just think that, well, it's just, you just believe in Jesus and you are entirely fine. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter where you walk righteously. It doesn't matter whether you obey the Lord or not, because Jesus and His cross and His sacrifice covers all and everything, and it doesn't really matter how it is that, that we walk. And I would say that if that's your view, there, there's something a little bit wrong with that, because the Bible links these two things. We're not saved by our works. We're saved totally by the grace of Christ. Christ covers everything, but when we come to believe in Christ, God will, will change us and make us new creatures and give us new desires. Where once we're dead in our sin, He will make us alive. Once we were blind, He will make us see. Where once we couldn't understand, then we will come to understand. And He places within us a desire then that flows out of our salvation that comes to love and follow Christ. I think of a couple verses that come to mind. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And there's just a, a message that says that Jesus has, has purchased us. He's died for our sins. He's saved us. He's redeemed us totally by, our great, by His grace. It's not by anything we've done, so we don't boast in that. But then the next verse says this. It says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God saves us by his grace, totally through through faith and just believing in him. Even the faith isn't of ourselves, what that says. But then it says that when he saves us, he's got all these works which he prepares beforehand that we should walk in them and that we should obey them. And walk in them and and walk in that that right way. Also, there's another verse in Romans chapter six, verse 14, which if you just read the second half of that verse, it sounds like Ephesians two, eight, nine. In some regards, says you're not under law, but under grace. And and you can think about this and say, wow, that's wonderful, right? The the law no longer governs us. We are, are covered by grace. We can we can just just bask in the glories of the gospel. But when you read the first part of that verse, it all seems to make sense. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you shouldn't be dominated by sin. Because, and precisely because, we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. Being under grace frees us, in many ways, from being dominated by by sin. But there, there are many who think that, no, it's, it's just we're saved by grace. And this was a battle, uh, I think probably in the 1980s, actually a big theological battle in the churches that people would say, no, 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 we're just saved by grace. We're just saved by faith. It doesn't matter the way you live. And uh, that's been worked through with articles and books and, and things like that. And, and, and I, I know what people are trying to do. They're trying to protect the gospel. And, and I rejoice in that. And, and also, it's interesting that that, that there ought to be an accusation from you of the fact that maybe you are totally discarding our obedience and our works. Because even Paul, when he presented in Romans chapter 5 how glorious the gospel is, the natural conclusion that some people might draw is that, oh, if the gospel's like that, then we might sin as we want, right? If Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote this, As through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even through... So through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That is, through Adam we're made sinners, but through Christ we are made righteous in the same way, by the way, because we didn't participate directly in Adam's sin, but yet we got his sin. And so likewise, when Christ then died for us, we didn't participate directly in that, but we, we get that by imputation as well. There's the glory of the gospel. And then Paul said, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, here comes the law to tell you and show you what your sin is. When you see the law and understand the law, then you rebel against full knowledge of the law. And the law actually just brings more sin. Right? There's a, there's a new law comes by Congress or United States of America just puts more sin, more transgression of law. The more laws there are, the more transgressions there are going to be. But the good news is this, that where the sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. And this led some to say, well, if grace increases when sin increases, then let sin abound. And you remember what Paul said? He said, may it never be. He said, no, no, may it never be. In fact, to say that we should continue in sin because it magnifies grace is devil's logic, is what one man called it. See, when the Lord saves someone from the sin, He transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. He changes us and it has an effect upon our lives. God God died for us that we might live for Him. Now, why do I mention all that? Because that's the very issue that Paul is dealing with in our text this morning. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. 
We've come this morning to verse 11. We will look at verse 11 through 16. Really, the context of this comes back to chapter 3, verse 3, when he speaks about how we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And he's fleshing out what it means to glory in Christ Jesus. To glory in Christ Jesus means... Verse 4, 5, and 6 is that you, you do away with all those religious accomplishments that you have. And verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, Paul says, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. These things that would have been good to me about, about a Jewish heritage and as to the law of Pharisee, is zealous for the church, as to the law of unblemished, he says that, that's all loss. And he says more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, everything in this earth is lost compared to knowing Him. But particularly, I might be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then, then Paul says this, that I may know Him, we looked at this last week, and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. And then our text right here, verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also has laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And I trust you can even see here that, that verses 7 and 8 and 9 just, just put the gospel forth just so clearly, just so magnificently that there it is, that by faith in Christ we get this righteousness that's not ours, and we can stand before God. But then Paul continues to say, listen, but, but, but a saving knowledge of Christ means that you pursue Christ and that you follow after Christ. And that was last week, right? That, that I might know Christ, the power of His resurrection. That verse 11, He might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That verse 12, He might grasp and lay hold of Christ. That verses 13 and 14, He might run for this, this goal of the upward prize, the calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then, and then he calls us, right? these are pursuing verses, these are pursuing after God, and then he calls us in verse 15 to have this attitude. And really, verse 15 is the key really to understanding this text and to understanding its application. Because he says, listen, have this attitude. What's the attitude? Well, the attitude is that, that we're redeemed completely in Christ, but yet also we are pursuing Christ with all of our heart, soul, Mind and strength. It's the attitude of Paul. It's the attitude that we are called to have. And I just ask you, are you relentlessly pursuing Jesus like Paul did? My message this morning is called Pursuing the Prize. I want to look first at the pursuit. Verses 11 through 14. We're going to see just Paul in three different waves just kind of coming across and just saying, this is how I'm pursuing Jesus. This is how I'm pursuing Him. And we're just going to see Him just longing and pursuing and following hard after God. In fact, the fact that Paul was found complete righteous in Christ in verse 9 
didn't mean he sat back and did nothing. No, rather it compelled him to press forward. Let's look at the first wave. It's found here in verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he's pressing on to know Christ that he might attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, the New American Standard hides the doubt in this verse. It is in the footnote. Literally, it says, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The ESV does a good job just by saying, if by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So strictly according to the grammar of this verse, Paul puts some doubt as to whether he would obtain the resurrection from the dead or not. But, but you gotta, you gotta think about this, okay? So, so Paul in this verse expresses some doubt about that. But this is the same one who wrote in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the same one who wrote in verse 20 that with all boldness, Christ will even now be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, right? Anticipating that it's, it's very much better to go and be with Christ. It's very much better to be with Him and join with Him eventually in the resurrection. So, so how is it that there's a doubt in verse 11 of chapter 3? And yet, he was firm in the resurrection and, and knowing Jesus, where he'd be after he died. Did, did he, like, lose faith between chapters 1 and 3? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think he lost confidence. He never lost confidence he'd be with Christ eternally. Most commentators merely say that this was an expression of Paul's humility. Uh, I, I, I think that's true, but I think some of it has to do with the fact that this is a future event. This is an event that hasn't been secured, hasn't absolutely taken place. In Paul's mind, in many ways it is, but it hasn't taken event. So he, he just placed it in the future. And also in the striving and gaining, he, he knows that he needs to continue to pursue and follow Christ to be that way because a, a genuine believer will persevere in the faith. And as he perseveres in the faith, he demonstrates he was authentic to begin with. So doubt doesn't come because of, of any doubt in his mind. It comes from just the context about pursuing Jesus. But the point is this, that Paul earnestly wants to know Christ, wants to know him deeply, wants to know his power, wants to know his sufferings, that he might gain the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul's goal in life, knowing Christ so as to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a true long term perspective of this life. He knew that it, it wasn't this life that counted. He, he knew rather it was a life that to come. He knew that this life was to prepare ourselves for that life. He knew that this life was to be used for that life. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 24, I do not consider my life as any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. See, this life wasn't dear to Paul. It was, it was like an open hand. What was dear to Paul was the, the life to come. His heart's passion was to experience the resurrection from the dead with all who trusted Christ. Now, again, I just ask you, is this your attitude? Is your pursuit of Christ like this? Earnestly pursuing Him to attain that goal or the prize, the resurrection from the dead. I mean, that, that is... That is the point of this text. Verse 15, let us therefore have this attitude. Let's have this attitude of digging deep with Christ, of seeking the future resurrection from the dead. In other words, don't think you've ever arrived in the Christian life. 
sadly, there are people that are. They, they go to church. They, they've figured out how to act. They've turned away from the big sins. And they think they're okay. Just kind of coasting on in. And, and Paul says, no. That's not where it is. If you're coasting, you're in trouble. Remember Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, speak about the drift that we can have. Right? The Christian life is like swimming upstream, like swimming up the river. If you just stay still, you're drifting down the river. Paul says, no, he's never arrived. He is pursuing that he might attain to this resurrection from the dead. Well, the second wave comes in verse 12. So it's a parallel thought. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And at the beginning of this verse, Paul is reminding those in Philippi that he hasn't obtained the resurrection yet. He's not perfect. But rather, what does he do? He presses on to lay hold of Christ. Because, in fact, why? Because Christ has laid hold of him. You see these two things. about Christ has grasped him, so therefore he is pursuing and wanting to grasp Christ. And verse 12 is, is a reflection upon his own conversion. I trust you remember what took place. He was a, a devoted Pharisee. He was zealous in his devotion, being a persecutor of the church. That's how he described himself in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He witnessed the stoning of Stephen, gave his hearty approval to what was taking place. And he was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women who he put them in prison. And so, in Acts chapter 9, the story is told about I went to the chief priest and got letters to arrest and imprison anybody in Damascus who's following after Christ. And as he was on the road, Christ got hold of him. He was on the road approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, Saul was Paul's previous pre-Christian name. He changed his name later to Paul. So why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city. He'll be told you what you must do. And so he struck blind, was led into the city. He didn't eat or drink anything for three days until Ananias came, laid his hands on him and told him how you are a chosen instrument of Jesus. And you will bear his name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. That was Jesus laying hold of the Apostle Paul. It's not like Paul found Jesus. Jesus found him. Jesus lay hold of him. And from that day on, Jesus Paul was never the same. Direct 180 in his life. In fact, he began to preach the faith which he once tried to destroy. We, we get the sense that even within days, maybe hours, he's in the synagogue on the side of Jesus, the side which he used to persecute. And Paul said, <clears throat> I'm going to grab Jesus because he has grabbed me and I'm never going to let go. Reminds me of the day that Jacob wrestled with God. They went all night long. When day was breaking, the Lord said to Jacob, let me go for the day is dawning. Jacob refused. said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And Jacob was blessed. And that's similar to what Paul is saying he's doing here. He's holding on. He is, he is clinging. He is grabbing on to God. On to Jesus, the very one who grabbed on to Him. Only Paul wasn't looking for a blessing. He was holding on to Jesus through his whole life to obtain the ultimate blessing of eternal life. 
And really, that's the faith. That's the faith of Christians is to hold on and to cling to God. I've heard it described as monkey faith before. You've seen baby monkeys at the zoo with their mothers. What do they do? They're grabbing on to their mothers, right? And as the mother walks around, the baby is like right on top of them and right moving around. That's how baby monkeys transport themselves. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about, I'm grabbing hold. I'm laying hold of the one who's laid hold of me. With cats, it's different. Monkey faith is different than cat faith. You know what cat faith is like? Baby cats get around when their mothers bite the back of their neck where they got a lot of skin and they pick them up and they carry them around, right? They're just like... Baby cats are like this. They're not grabbing onto nothing. It's mom who's bringing onto them. And, and, and you combine really both of those together and Paul's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about cat faith that grabbed the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Okay, so God's got him. And yet on the other side, Paul is a monkey who's, who's grabbing on and holding on for dear life to, um, to God. That's a lot like Paul has already mentioned. Philippians 2. 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to willing to work for His good pleasure. In other words, right? You work out your salvation because God is the one working. You hold on to Christ with monkey faith because God has got you with cat faith. Put both those two things together. Maybe the best picture isn't the picture of a monkey or a cat, but a mother and a child. A mother holding on to a child. A child holding on to the mother. And yet keep in mind, as Richard Sib said, a quote I've quoted several times before, when the child doesn't fall, it's from the mother's holding the child and not from the child's holding the mother. So it is God's holding of us, knowing of us, embracing of us, justifying us, that makes the state firm and not ours. So yes, he's clinging with monkey faith, but that's ultimately because God's got him with cat faith. Well, that's the second wave. That's what we're talking about verse 12. The third wave comes here in 13 and 14. The third wave of pursuing God. The first one was 10 11, really just pursuing after God for the resurrection. The next is grasping onto God. And here we see him running the race. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laving laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, we see Paul stressing this fact. He hasn't arrived. Yes, he's holding on to Christ. Yes, he's longing for Christ, but he's not there yet. And, and, and this, this is the flip side, like, like my book I was talking about. Yes, yes, there is everything that's true in the Gospel. He said that in verse 8 and 9. But yet on the other side... The responsibility of that, the desire that comes, I'm pursuing Jesus and I'm pressing on. I'm not there yet. I have to be faithful until death. He's still striving, still working, still clinging, still pursuing. Not to earn His salvation, but because of His salvation is why He's acting that way. The picture He uses here in 13 and 14 is that of a foot race. He's running, pressing forward, driving towards the goal. And as, as with every race, his heart's to win. His heart's to win the prize. Now, <clears throat> I have here in my hand a very funny looking thing. I had this in my office this week and David said, what is this? And what is it, David? 
It's like a trophy. Okay, let me describe it to you. Um, actually, let me, let me back up a little bit. Is When I was in seminary almost 25 years ago, uh, we used to take a break from uh, our studies and we would go and play Frisbee golf. There's a Frisbee golf course just five minutes from our house. And we would go out. And, and, and the way you play Frisbee golf is different than like you're supposed to play it. Like you're supposed to have this big bag of, of, of discs that you have and you, and you throw it and then you kind of walk along like real golf. Okay. But we used to do is get some exercise. We would take one big Frisbee, right? Totally. I think we totally smashed these people on the course. They didn't like us at all. But we took big Frisbee and threw it. And we all teed off. And then we all ran, picked up a Frisbee, and then we got it. And we just ran this course. You know, we could do a couple times around in an hour. And we, we ran this course, and it was really fun what we did. And I said, you know what? Let me make it more interesting. So let me, let me make this traveling trophy is what I did. It's very cheesy, SR. Sorry for the design. Okay, but this is before I knew anything about design. These are just things I had around our apartment. I had a, this is a two by four. I had a block of two by four. I covered it with white paper. And somehow I got this styrofoam Union 76 ball plastic. So I just put it on there, inserted this T and, and, and had it on the front. It says a master's seminary, this big logo. On the back, it says this. It says, the Master Seminary and Union 76 are proud to present the current Frisbee golf champion. So we played this. We kept our scores. And, and we, got, we got our scores kind of written right here, whoever, whoever would win it. And um, you might call this a trophy, but I called it the Brabeon. Ta Brabeon. The prize. The goal. And I have been keeping Ta Brabeon for over 20 years, so I could show this to you on this morning. It's been in a box. It's traveled with us, and finally you get to see it. But hopefully, it'll, it'll burn in your mind a little bit of what what Paul is going after. He's going after this prize. Now, the prize that Paul's going after is a little bit better than Tabrabeyan. Right? In fact, he's pursuing after eternal life with Christ. But he's going after it, reaching and striving and straining to be in heaven with Jesus. And he's going to describe it in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Right? Our citizenship, we are heavenly minded. Our citizenship's in heaven. And Christ is going to come and change our body to be with Him. He's going to subject ourselves. We will be subjected to Him and it will be all in glory in heaven because the prize is being with Jesus and the prize is being like Jesus. 1 John 3.2 Beloved, we are now children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. The prize is to be with Jesus. The prize is to be like Jesus. And Paul puts forth all of his effort to be with Christ. And if you notice even here, it says um, he's not looking behind Him. He's not looking around Him. He's looking dead set straight ahead. 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as loving and laid hold. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on to get this prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what runners do? Runners have their eyes on the tape. 
they don't they don't have their eyes back where they've run. They don't glory over every inch that they have ran past. I mean, for instance, take those who are running a mile. Okay, I'm just thinking about a mile. There's lots of races, but a mile is four times around, fifteen hundred to whatever you want to call it. But after the first lap, right? They've they've, they've got what's the runner thinking? He's running along. He said, "Okay, I got the first lap lap done. I got I got a got a good time. I'm I'm in the hunt here, and I got three more to go. Come on, you can do it." So he's run the first lap. He's kind of thinking right about the three laps to come, and then after a second lap, he's thinking, "Okay, halfway. I'm on pace. I just need to keep it up to stay in the heart of the race. I can do it. I'm going to do it." And then after the third lap, he's got one more lap to go. What's the the runner thinking? Okay. Finally, I, I gotta, I gotta pick up my pace here. I gotta think about the back stretch. Keep my, keep my speed in the back stretch. I gotta be prepared for a good kick at the end. And on, on the back stretch, he's thinking, right? I, I keep it going, keep it going. I got a chance. I can do this. And the final moments of his race, uh, you know, he's probably not thinking about much because he's so hard. It's so straining to reach that, that tape that it's hard to even think about the goal. He's a full out sprint, not thinking about much. He just flawed. That's what he's, that's what Paul is saying. I'm not thinking about what's behind me. In fact, all runners, they're forward-looking. A runner doesn't run the first lap and say, Wow, look at all that ground I covered. I, I, did, I did pretty good. Look at, I ran around this, this track once already. Wow, that was... In fact, I remember when I was here last time. That was really good. And after the second lap, they don't say, Wow, look, at, I've gone around this track twice. That's been really good, what, what I did. I've done a great job up to this point. And after the third lap, they don't say, well, I'm almost finished, right? Because I've already run three times around this lap. In fact, did you, that second lap was really good what I ran, wasn't it? That was awesome. I should get the prize based on that lap alone. Don't say that. And running down the final stretch, they don't say, wow, I've run a mile without stopping. Look at, look at the turf. I'm, I'm bearing it up back there. They're not running down there like that. Are they? Is that silly? They don't cross the finish line with a head looking backwards. No, as Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's only looking forward that we're fit for the kingdom of God. And sadly, I say this, there are many who do this with their life. Rather than looking forward to the finish line, they look back to their religious accomplishments. They look to their trophies on the wall. And they say, wow, look at me, I've... I've attended church nearly every Sunday of my life. I've served the church with gusto. I served in the Iwana program when my kids were small. I was right there with them. I was Sunday school superintendent for a number of years, chairman of the missions committee. I even made a missions trip. I taught Sunday school. In fact, I remember even once I, I served a Thanksgiving dinner down at the mission one, one Thanksgiving day. I remember that. They should think about all the religious things and merits they've accomplished and suddenly a message can creep into our minds that we're saved by our works. We've done a good job serving the Lord. Christ should let us in. But that wasn't the attitude of the Apostle Paul. Like a good runner, he forgot the things behind him. Verse 7 is Paul forgetting his Jewish credentials. That refers back to 5 and 6. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And verse 8, I think he wasn't looking to his Christian credentials either. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's even his Christian credentials. He says, it's just, it's there. I did that. Yes, I've served the Lord. Yes, I've, I've served faithfully, but I'm not, I'm not ticking off all of my, 
all of my credentials. I'm not saying, hey, look at all that that I've run. No, he's got his head dead set to, to finish it. For him, it's, it's between now and the end that I need to focus on. And I just say, for you all, is, is that the sort of attitude that you have? Do you have a look from now until the end? You know, I don't know how old you are. But if you're... Phil, how old are you? 62. Okay, Phil... Do you have an attitude from 62 to the end? Like, this, this is my life. This is what I want. I want to be important in that, right? I'm 47, 46. I'm turning 47 pretty soon. I keep forgetting. You, you know how that is, those of you who are getting older. You, you, you can't understand. But I, my mindset needs to be, okay, from 46 to the end. It's not, okay, how do you do 0 to 46? No, I want to forget that. I, I, I'm just concerned about from now until the end. And if you, any of you are in your 30s, right? Darren, I know you're in your 30s, right? How old are you? 35, okay. Darren, just 35 until the end. And some of you kids, right? How old are you, Ethan? 13. Have an eye from 13 until the end. Okay, now you might have a little longer race than what I have. Certainly than Mr. Gusky, what he has. All right, but <laughs> but have your vision for the end. Don't, don't say, oh, I'm 13. Look at all I've done. Have your vision towards the end. That's what Paul is saying. That's the attitude. And, and here's the big question, my second point, which will be shorter on. But is this your attitude? Is your attitude like that of the Apostle Paul? He, he says, let us have that attitude. Verse 15, let us therefore... As many as are perfect have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The the clear command there, verse 15, it says, therefore, this is the conclusion of everything he's talked about. These three waves of pursuing Christ, pursuing Christ, laying hold of him, grabbing, running after Jesus. He said, here it is. You have that same attitude. Now, before we get to that, we need to come across another one of these apparent contradictions, but you've got to realize it's the same author. Paul is not double-minded. How is it that he says in verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, when he says in verse 12, not that I have obtained it or have already become perfect. In verse 12, he says, I have not become perfect. In verse 15, he says, well, let us all who are perfect how do you, was he perfect or was he not? Well, I think he's talking here about perfect positional standing, right? Or you might say, as the ESV translates it, as the margin of the New American Standard says, as many as are mature. He uses the same word to mean different things. We do that all the time in English. They do it all the time in Greek. A word in Greek doesn't have to have all its wooden meaning the same time. The first one, it means I've not become entirely sanctified. I've not become perfect, verse 12. But verse 12, he speaks about, yes, I'm perfectly standing in Christ and I am mature. I have this maturity about me. And whoever of you is mature, if any of you think I'm mature, have the same attitude that Paul did. Because the immature, by the way, won't have this attitude. The immature won't be in full pursuit of Christ. And maybe you've noticed that. People who are immature in their faith, kind of... You know, they they pursue this or they pursue that or they just kind of go off in their way. But Jesus really isn't really isn't the thing. And Paul says they're in danger. You got to you got to have this attitude. 
This is the attitude we need to have, right? Pursuing the prize like a runner, not looking back, not looking, but looking forward to the finish line, straining and working hard in our run. Laying hold of Christ because He's laid hold of that. Longing to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That is our preeminent goal, is to know Jesus. Striving to know Him. Because the the freeness of the Gospel has so gripped us that we want to know this Jesus. Do you have that one-track mind? In fact, Paul calls it a one-track mind. Verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. I'm just doing this one thing. Just this, just this one thing. I'm pressing on. Now, this one thing is, is pretty broad and pretty general. But it is, it, is, it is just this thing. I'm pursuing Jesus with all my heart in this life. Robert Moorhead said it this way, My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. And my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in a maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, or slow up till I've preached up, prayed up, stored up, and stayed up for Christ. Sounds like a a one-track mind. This is... This is all I do. The simplicity of my life is about pursuing Jesus. You know, I've heard it said before that uh, preachers, when they go to bed on Saturday night, if they are, if they're stirred and and said, "Steve, wake up! What's your outline?" Boom! They gotta they gotta have their outline. If they don't have their outline right there, right? Pursuit of God, right? Pursuing God is this your attitude? You gotta know that. It's just gotta be like the thing, and so. Likewise, this is the one thing you do. If you're stirred, you say, what's your life goal? What's your life goal? You got to get up and you say, pursuing Christ. Is that what you do? That's the attitude that Paul has. He says, I'm just pursuing Him. Any, anytime we're like, okay, what's your purpose in life? Pursuing Christ. Pursuing. That's what, I, that's what I'm about. That's what Paul is, is saying here. He's single-minded and, and single-focused. And that is... Really, in many ways, the key to success in the Christian life is to have this laser-like focus upon, upon Christ. I ran across an article. I think I have an article here. Do I? i got to have it. Ryan, did you do something with it? Ah, here it is. Here it is. <clears throat> You know who that guy is? This is a while ago. Who is he? Ryan, you're shaking your head. Who is he? You don't know. This is Papa John. I don't anything about Papa John, but I remember cutting this article out saying, hey, this is, this is really helpful here. Now, he's just talking about worldly wisdom for his business, okay? And I'm not... But there's a spiritual parallel here in many ways. And this was early on, this was uh, many years ago, and it just uh, continues to expound. He says, uh, my story of success began when I discovered the importance of focus. As we've gotten bigger, 
And a lot better, I might add, it troubles me that folks are always trying me to tell me I should change something. Widen our horizons and make things more complicated. One frequent suggestion is adding menu items. Well, this suggestion reminds me of the old, old days in store number one in Jeffersonville, Indiana. The one thing I remember about the first store was the complexity of the menu. We thought we could be all things to all people. We had four kinds of subs, salads, fried mozzarella sticks, fried mushrooms, and fried zucchini. We even had pizza. Not to mention a full-service dining room with napkins and tables and chairs and knives and tablecloths, china and waitress. Yes, that's right. A waitress. My wife, Annette, was the original waitress. Looking back, it was a nightmare to do a good job with all these menu items. In fact, by trying to be all things to all people, we ended up being nobody to nobody. Sales were disastrous, so I simplified things, streamlined the menu. That was the absolute best thing I ever did. We found reward, about a billion dollars worth of reward, and discovered splendid serendipity in keeping things focused. Yep, leave the fancy new products and the witches brew pizza up to the other guys, the big chains, and let them be mediocre. There's nothing as great as being the best, and being the best is all about finding a better method. This won't happen unless all of your energies are concentrated and focused. Put all your eggs in one basket and watch that basket. In your life, I would like to recommend something. Let politicians and corporate guys get fancy and use those big 20-letter words. Trust me, this one. If you want to be successful, stay focused, keep it simple, find something you're good at, and work at it for all it's worth. There's a lot of wisdom in there. And I think, let's just, let's just bring it to Christ. If, if you start involving yourself in, in all these things, you might easily miss the focus of Christ. But pursuing Jesus passionately and Him and Him alone is the secret of what Paul is saying to the Christian life. You want to be successful in the Christian life, then just find that one goal, which is Jesus, and pursue after Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, it said of the cheetah that when the cheetah's hungry, he watches a flock of animals and he picks out one of them. He says, That's lunch. And he may rub shoulders even as he goes after that animal, right? Comes close to some other hands, but nothing's going to distract him from that one weak animal that he's going to pursue after, unfortunate victim that he has singled out. I think there's some things to be learned here about the cheetah to get lunch. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is our only focus and we need to pursue Him. That's right here in my message that I can really trust the Lord. Let's look at what verse 15 says. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, right? This single laser focus on Christ. And if in anything... You have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. What great comfort is there? A lot of people here in this room. And I'm just going to trust the Lord right now to reveal to you where you are. Maybe you're here this morning without Christ. Maybe, maybe you need Jesus Maybe you're seeking your own righteousness. I'm just going to trust God right now to reveal that to you. Trusting that God will reveal to you the reality you can't stand before God on your own righteousness. You can only stand by faith in Jesus, verse 9. Well, maybe you're here this morning and believing in Jesus but not pursuing Him. You know what? I don't see you at your home, I don't see you when you're alone. I can't see your heart. But God does. And the promise of this verse is that if you've got a a double-minded heart, God will reveal that to you. 
And I'm just trusting God's going to reveal that to you. Convict you of sin, perhaps, and bring you to repentance. I'm trusting God's going to reveal to you just a, a necessity in your life to pursue Jesus, focused, single-minded. And I'm going to trust that God's going to reveal to you the way to do this, not by trying harder. It's not by your own efforts and your own motivation. It's not by figuring out, hey, I'm going to be like Papa John now. I'm just going to do this. That's, that's not it. It's by reflecting upon Jesus and all that He has done and being so overwhelmed in Him that you can't help but to follow after Him in love and joy and peace and happiness. Being convinced that verse 8 is true. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'm just going to trust God reveal that to you. And in verse 16, then Paul comes back to just how we ought to live. He says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. He's, he's not talking about some legalistic rules and regulations of external righteousness, this, this external thing of all these things we need to do and all these people we need to stay away from and, and all the movies we can't see and all the, the dress, the way we need to hold our hair and the way we need to dress this way and the way we need to... He's not talking about all that. He, he's just talking about this. Philippians, remember when you came to Christ, you were living in a, in a pagan way. You've given up your idols. You've given those things to follow Jesus. You've made some steps in sanctification in your life. You're walking towards it. Let's keep living by that same standard as you pursue Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's saying as you've begun to pursue Christ, don't turn back to your own sinful ways. You follow Him, pursue Him, and just continue to increase in your own love towards God. Seek the Lord. Well, as I mentioned at the earlier part of my message this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And how appropriate is it for us this morning as we think about God revealing maybe a different attitude that you have? Because 1 Corinthians 11.28 says that before we celebrate the Supper, we ought to examine ourselves and to see if we eat and drink the cup of the Lord in a worthy or unworthy manner. And, and, and to be quite honest, I think there's... There's none of us who are so wholly satisfied with our walk with Christ. Are you? Don't raise your hand, okay? Because it's almost like he was without sin, throw the first stone, right? He was like, I'm there. Okay, well, Paul never wasn't perfect, verse 12. There's always areas in which we lack. We're pursuing other things rather than Jesus. You know, but this, this is a time, be a great opportunity for you just to reflect upon Christ, His worthiness, and just your own, your own heart before the Lord. So why don't you bow your head as we think about examining our, our hearts before the Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians that we should examine ourselves and in so doing eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And I think simply what Paul is talking about here is, is are, you, are you pursuing Jesus? Are you pursuing a passion to know Him? In those areas where you aren't, I just ask you to confess that before the Lord. Seek His strength to change. It's not that you need to do anything or merit anything to be worthy of the supper. You simply need to repent of your sin 
and realize that Christ is everything. If that's where your heart is, boy, celebrate the suffer that, that Christ is the one who died for us and His blood was shed for us. But if not, uh, I just encourage you to let the cup and bread pass. If you're unwilling to repent or you don't have this desire in your heart that says, I really want to know Jesus and to know Him deeply. So Lord, I pray that You would be with us today. I pray that You would strengthen us. God, to be able to be like the runner. To pursue You, not looking back. Give us strong grip of You, O Lord. That when we might be tempted to, to turn our own way, as You give us a heart to just grab onto You and cling onto You. Give us this desire of our heart and mind to know You. Not about You, but to know You genuinely. And I would pray as we celebrate the supper, even as You have promised us to do, as often as You eat it, do it in remembrance of Me. Remembering You upon the cross. Remembering all of Your significance. What You have accomplished for us. Lord, we plead that You'd commune with us now. Help us reflect upon the Christ cross where we are justified, made holy and righteous. God, may you guide us on that one narrow path, the path to life just through faith in Christ. Amen.